Today's scripture text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, beginning with the ninth verse. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, I'm delighted to be here with you. You have been amazing hosts and uh, wonderful spirit of this community. And then to receive this treat, as I just was informed that I did last night, namely that an entire uh, little children's play would be uh, based on my theological work. Uh, I mean, th th there is no higher achievement for any living theologian than something like that happening, and I mean it seriously. <laughs> this was wonderful, absolutely splendid. So thank you. Thank you for, for all of this for this weekend, and it's a great time together. I'll have to disappoint you. Uh, title of my sermon is not um, Trust and Truth, Truth and Trust. Title of my sermon is simply Joy. I didn't know how to preach the text on truth and trust on the text, uh, the, preach the sermon on the text that we read on truth and trust, so I decided to preach on joy. So that your joy may be complete. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Now, a very famous theologian, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, and I invoke his name because he was really truly great theologians, and all of you ought to know about him, and all of you ought to go and buy his books and read them. Um, don't. <laughs> Some of you could, but it's going to take a lot of time. Um, Thomas Aquinas said, the joy is a unity between myself and that which I love, the object of my love. That's what produces joy. So, there's a chocolate cake, which I like. And when I'm united with the chocolate cake, uh, <laughs> then I have joy. <laughs> or there is a place back in Croatia <laughs> that I grew up in, and when I return them and am united with that place, I feel joy. 
That's kind of a one-sided thing. Only I rejoice. The object of my joy, presumably chocolate, doesn't rejoice at me eating it, right? <laughs> but there are also joys that happen mutually. I see my daughter. She smiles at me when I come. I smile at her. She rejoices, and I rejoice because I have been united with the object of my love. That's how the loves between people are, whether they're spouses, children, partners, whoever. And then there is even more complex love. The two lovers love each other and therefore rejoice in each other, and they rejoice also in something that they like in common, in that chocolate uh, cake or in that place where they might go, vacations they might take. This is what joy is. And that kind of a joy, I think, is the greatest fun that we can have on this planet. When we are together united with the objects of our love. And yet, though it often happens that we have such experiences of joy, yet our time in which we live has often been, descri been described as joyless time. Our economy is joyless. We scurry like little rats in order to achieve our ends. Our politics is joyless, and I don't need to describe it for you. Our education is joyless work very hard and think whether we're going to get those grades and so forth. Even our humor, I think, funny that it is and pleasurable that it is and sophisticated that it is, is often joyless. And so I ask myself, why is it that we live relatively joyless lives? What are, you can put it this way, what are some of, the, some of joy inhibitors? What inhibits joy? And if you take Aquinas' idea and say, well, the, for joy, it, it takes two. It takes uh, me or you and the object of your love, right? The joy can go wrong on two sides of this thing, on both sides of this. The object that you could love maybe you don't love sufficiently. We live in a time where nothing is quite good enough because everything can be a little bit better. And when we've received something, maybe for a while we stay with it, but we immediately think, what might there be that's better? Who might have something that's better than what we have? Or we never have enough. So the entire advertisement industry is organized. Sophisticated folks uh, who know psychology really well uh, deploy immense resources in order to make us feel that we don't have enough. And if you don't have enough, if you no don't have things that are good enough, you don't rejoice. Or the problem can be with the self who's supposed to be rejoicing over things. If we live at a time when nothing is good enough, we also live at a time 
where we are never good enough. Now, it used to be, time, uh, be a time in the past where we felt a heavy hand of guilt, and we were never good enough when measured with this requirement that God placed upon us to love our neighbors perfectly and to love God with all of our hearts uh, and so on, or other forms of guilt that might have been placed on us. And guilt will choke joy. But today we don't live so much in a time where we feel guilty. We live in a time where we more feel depressed. And depression is a malady of self-perceived inadequacy. I'm never good enough. I'm not trim enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not influential enough. I am never enough, and especially if I'm not alone, but when I go in a room and compare myself with people, then I think, well, everybody's better here than me. That's the experience of most of Yale's students, right? <laughs> very, very talented kids who have worked very hard to get into that classroom. And when they sit in their classroom, they're top of their high school, right? And in that high school, they're just about like anybody else. And everybody has read some book that they haven't, has achieved some, made some achievement that they haven't, and they feel inadequate. As a matter of fact, the Yale professors feel the same way. You sit in the same room with other professors, and all of them have read something, not just something, but the mountains of books that you haven't. They know stuff that you don't, and you feel like you're inadequate. Kind of problem of inadequacy. And so we have this kind of spiral of depression, or we have a spiral of malcontent and complaint. We don't have enough, we are not getting enough, we aren't uh, not good enough, we are depressed, we don't have enough, we complain. And instead of spiral of rejoicing and dance of rejoicing, we have a sense of depression and complaint. And so the question, I think, for us is what will break that spiral of inadequacy that robs us of joy? In the text that we have read, we see that we, Jesus' disciples in that text, but also we, are inserted into a stance, into a circle of love divine love and the circle of joy. As Father has loved me, as the Father rejoices and delights in me, Jesus said, so I have loved you and so my joy is in you. And also so you shall too, or you can too, love one another. Now, when we think about God's love, we often remember a statement from John's Gospel, John 3, 16, the most famous of all verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And indeed, Jesus later on will mention this kind of love that God gives for us to free us from the captivity of our sin and inadequacy. But there is a love that's prior to that. And that's the love that is expression of God's creating the world. World, when we say that God created the world, 
we don't mean to describe process by which the world came into being so much as we meant to mean to express the relationship that we have to the world and the world has to God, namely that everything that we see is a gift of God to us. And if a gift, then it is an expression of love. So you can put it this way in this story that Jesus tells and in the story of the entire Bible, we are just by being who we are, inserted in these cascading circles of love that have their origin, that are God and have their origin in God. That's where we belong. God who is love, world which is created out of love, and we ourselves who are beloved and created for love. Now, if that's the case, then despite the fact that many things that we encounter, that many negative things in our lives that we encounter, we can nonetheless rejoice in the good that the world is, that our relationships are. We have been so singularly trained to pay attention to that which is negative. <laughs> negative jumps at us with the force. There are good reasons for that too, right? You want to be attuned to what might harm you, but we shouldn't let that occlude the fact that the preponderance of good that is there in which we can rejoice. Goods that we have, rather than concentrating on something that isn't, concentrate on something that we have. And the same is true of our own lives. Inadequacies often jump to us immediately, whereas we forget to rejoice and notice even the beauty of the life that is ours, beauty of the selves that we truly are. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I think the worth and the goodness is a function of us being experiencing ourselves as love. When we are loved, we love the others. When we see the world as a gift, then we also rejoice in the world as a gift. Now, I'm sketching here a rosy picture for you, and you're probably a little bit un kind of partly happy, partly uneasy. But what about... <laughs> you want to say. I'm talking about these cascading circles of love of which we are a part, and you're saying, where are these circles? We do live in a fallen world, and in addition to the delight that we have in one another, love expresses it always in the labor of love, in the sacrifice of love. Greater love, Jesus said in this passage, has no human being than to give his life on behalf of the other. He doesn't mean, okay, I'll demonstrate to you how much I love you, that I'm going to kill myself for you, right? <laughs> that I'm going to lose my life for you. He means 
there's a labor of love to achieve your good that if I love you, I will undertake. I mentioned my little daughter. Um, you know, my mind is full of her, and I miss her terribly. Uh, I see her in the morning. I come to her bed, uh, and she's generally awake. And as soon as she hears my voice, sees my face, uh, she brightens up and is rejoicing. Those little legs start kicking. There is a kind of pure joy, and then it reflects back on me. She's rejoicing that in me, that I'm rejoicing in her. And we have this kind of delightful feast for 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> then I take her and put her on changing table, and then come diaper comes diaper time. <laughs> uh, and then comes other times that uh, require the work of love, the labor of love. We give, and we give, we often sacrifice something of our own so that we can feed that love and that beloved person. And that's why I think we also have to be commanded to love. I don't have to be commanded to love my little daughter when I come around the corner in the kitchen, the smiling face is there, I say, whoa, this is great, right? She loves me just for being myself. I love her just for her being herself. But about diapers, I have to remind myself, you have, Mr. Father, responsibilities, not just delights. And that requires a kind of a command of love. And so sometimes, our loves are grumpy loves. <laughs> we do things that love requires, but we are grumpy givers. And often when we are grumpy givers, the receivers become grumpy too. <laughs> You're not doing this. You don't love me enough. <laughs> or I don't feel being loved when you're grumpy and you're doing this thing, uh, these things uh, for me. And then the circle of grumpiness of those who love each other emerges. I think one of the keys to have complete joy is to somehow move from the grumpy love to a joyous love. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, there's a passage from Deuteronomy uh, 20, uh, 28, and there's a list of blessings that the children of Israel will have if they serve God, obey God's commandments, and there is the list of curses that will befall them if they don't do that. And then toward the end, you read following words at the end of the curses. But you did not serve the Lord your, uh, uh, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord sent against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in lack of all things. I was reading this and I thought, well, this, this just isn't, totally is not fair. <laughs> it's okay for God to ask me to serve God, but it's not okay for God to demand that I do it happily. <laughs> and yet, what happens when we love grumpily? 
what happens with us, what happens with other people whom we serve, often we then end up in abundance being hungry, being thirsty, being naked, because we cannot be satisfied with what we are receiving or with what we are giving. Our love will be complete when we start rejoicing, not just in the delight of others' presence, but also in the labor of love for another. How to discover the delights of love's labor, I think, is a secret of the success of our lives. But that's the topic for next sermon. <laughs> Thank you very much.